0: Is God's blessing on you who suffer? Is God's blessing on you who suffer? Is divine blessing on the church that suffers? I suppose if you think that divine favor always means, always means never suffering, then of course your answer is going to be no, right? Or if you think that God's number one goal for your life is to avoid suffering, then again, you're going to think no. If you think divine favor can never come in the context of suffering, then, of course, your answer is also no. In today's passage from Acts chapter 4, I invite you to turn there with me now, we actually see that God's favor Comes to his church despite their suffering and in the midst of their suffering, bringing them the blessing of Christian unity. I'll go ahead and repeat that as that is the the main idea for today. We see that God's favor comes to his church despite their suffering, in their suffering. Here's kind of like the point that you can underline bringing them the blessing of Christian unity, bringing them the blessing of Christian unity. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and 37. Again, we continue to walk through the book of Acts here, and we see that the risen Christ is working to build his church through the apostles as they go around preaching the gospel. And Jesus is doing this in the power of the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. But it doesn't go as smoothly as we, they, might want. Just as the rulers persecuted Jesus, so they persecuted his followers. We saw earlier in chapter 4, if you're right there, go ahead and scan that. We see there that the apostles are jailed for preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. But despite the apostles being jailed, and then eventually they're released, but despite them being jailed so early in the start of the church, right in its infancy, our passage reminds us that they are nevertheless a blessed church. Why is that? Well, we see here from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. And laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who is also called Bar- uh, called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, let's go ahead and look at uh, why why they are a blessed church. Why they are a blessed church. Point number one. They are blessed because they were a united church. They were a united church. Look there at verse 32. Now the full number of believers were of one heart and one soul. Beautiful language to describe here, the unity of the early church and in full number. The church here was already numbering into the thousands, and yet despite their number, they are of one heart and one soul. When you think of of unity, right, in a common vision or toward a common goal, or common experience, right, I'm sure you guys can think of various illustrations that draw out and highlight different aspects of this unity. So you can think of the aspect of teamwork, right? The teamwork needed for the championship sports team, whether basketball, whether baseball, right? Every teammate in that team plays their position, right? They work together, depending on one another, towards the goal of the championship, Think of the aspect, when it comes to unity, think of the the aspect of vision and commitment. Shared vision, shared commitment. Think of, for example, various health organizations on the field. Where where the people, there partner to eradicate disease. Where health workers, which some of you guys are, health workers, right? They join together on the front lines trying to save people's lives. Think of the aspect of unity when it comes to the oneness of heart and affection. Even on the lighter side of things, right, when it comes to oneness of heart and affection, you can think on, like, you know, again, the lighter side or, you know, people who join together to share the same deep love for something, like the Corgi Club of Los Angeles. There is one, by the way, where all of its members get get together to share their mutual love for their cute little fluffy dogs. Let me tell you, in all of those examples here, the the world's unity is nothing compared to Christian unity. It is nothing compared to Christian unity. The church's unity is fundamentally not of this world. Think Think about the world's unity for a moment here. Anybody can be unified. Unity in and of itself is not a big deal. Hitler and the Third Reich were unified in their goal to some degree. They shared a deep unity. The devils and his minions share a deep unity in trying to stop Christ and trying to bring down believers. There's unity. And then we know from our passage earlier that Herod, Pontius Pilate, the, the Gentiles and the Jews were united in crucifying the Christ. So, you know, you know, unity in and of itself is actually not a big deal. But you look at the world's unity, the fact that they have it, it actually highlights the uniqueness of the church's unity the uniqueness found in the unity of the church. The nations are united and raging against Christ, but in the big picture, right, that does nothing to deter the unified church of Jesus Christ and Christ and his purposes. Even though the world is united to some degree, the church experiences unity that is finally otherworldly. It is the unity that is experienced in God. It's the unity that God intended that we have and the unity that Jesus himself prayed for us and his disciples and for us, he prays for all who would believe. So in John chapter 17, this is what he prays in verse 21. He prays that they, that is we who would believe in the future along with his disciples. So that means Jesus himself is praying for us. He prays that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you. That they, that is you guys, would be in us. He's not talking about us becoming God or anything. He's just talking about us partaking of him and with him such that we have fellowship with him. We are made one with him. Verse 26, Jesus continues to pray. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that, here's the purpose, that, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, of course, we could unpack this for weeks here, what it means for us to be one, right? Just as Jesus is one with the Father, the Father is in Christ, and so he wants his church to be in him. But did you notice there, as I was reading that, that when a person comes to know Jesus, so you Christian, you enter into the unity of the love that is shared between God the Father and God the Son, you know something, even even the slightest glimmer, right? Let's say you're a new Christian, right? You know something of God's deep and eternal and abiding love for his very own son. You know something of Jesus' very own love for his father. Talk about oneness of heart and will and purpose and love and character. This is absolute, infinite, perfect oneness of heart shared between the members of the Trinity, And now Christ's people, as they enter into the love of God, having received the love of God in Christ in our own hearts, we taste something of that love. We may not know it fully, but we know it truly. How exactly do we enter into this unity of love and heart? Acts chapter 2, right, talks about the Spirit. In the Spirit, God has given his people new hearts for God so that we might know him. That's the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31. Come to be fulfilled in the pouring out of the Spirit. So there's a reason in Acts chapter 2 that we see, if you go ahead and turn back to Acts 2.42, we also have this you know unique description of the church there, the fellowship of believers, them devoting themselves, them being of one. It's very similar to our passage today. But that comes after the pouring out of the Spirit. You have the pouring out of the Spirit, and then this beautiful picture of the church's oneness In Jesus Christ, in the pouring out of the Spirit on his people, God was on the move. In Jeremiah 32, we see there that God promised that one day, God prophesies the fact that one day, quote, I will give them one heart and one way, where they would not rebel as they had and rejected God, but instead as their people, they would fear God, they would obey him, and it says there in Jeremiah 32, God would delight in showering his blessings upon them. And he would continue to do that in steadfast love. It's important to, to underscore here that this unity and all of the acts that flow from it, as we read, it, it results in them sharing uh, their material blessings. It comes from the fact, again, that they are Christians. They have the same spirit. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching, as it says, says in Acts chapter 2.42. And then here, if you look there at 33, look there. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. You have this aspect of the preaching of the gospel. It's like a preaching of the gospel sandwich. Around it is what they were doing. And in the middle, it seems to be why they were doing it. It's because the gospel that they had embraced so worked into their lives that they were living lives that reflected the love of Jesus Christ and a love that was in Jesus Christ. It produced, the gospel here produces a godly concern, a generosity, a self-sacrifice, a love highlighted here in meeting each other's needs. This is the unity that flows from Christ. As his Christians, right, as his people, we have the spirit. And now his love becomes our love. His purposes become our purposes. His ends become our ends. And we know this because of the gospel. I mean, isn't the love here that we see in Acts chapter 4? A reflection a stemming from a fruit of the love of the gospel of Jesus. We know that God have so, has so loved the, the evil and wicked world of which we are a part that he gives his son so that all who repent of their sins would believe on him. And so there you see, right, Jesus, you see God meeting sinners' needs in Christ. He sees the need, he provides. He sees the need and so he acts and he moves. He sees the need and he shares of himself that is his Lord. So that those who repent and believe would know forgiveness of sins. So that they would know adoption into his family. They would know the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ alone. As Christ dies on the cross for the sin of his people, bearing the wrath that they deserved. And in so doing, as we receive the spirit being justified before God, having the peace of God and love of God poured out into our hearts, as Romans says, we now share in the love of God. He provides for our needs in Christ, in the gospel. And so we here we see that the Christians here are just loving, in many ways, like God. Certainly not in any way where we can cover people's sins and, and atone for their sins, not at all. But they see, we see here that the people are reflecting and living in the love of God and the gospel as they just simply love other people. They love, they move, out in, they move outward, and their love swallows up others, so to speak, as Jonathan Edwards says, so that, so that the church would be unified just as we are unified and in union with God. This is the message of the gospel that we preach, Lord willing, every single Sunday, that sinners can be saved. We sinned against God. God, once again, meets the problem with the wonderful solution of his infinite grace and love for his people in Christ, dies on the cross. The eternal son takes on flesh, lives a perfect life, dies the death we should have because we were the ones who rebelled and earned for ourselves just judgment. On the cross, Jesus dies. Three days later, he gets up from the grave showing that death no longer reigns over his people. And now all, including you, if you don't know Jesus, who repent of their sins, would know the love of God and be saved, forgiven, forgiven, and experience the riches of his blessings in Jesus Christ. And so now we as Christians, once again, we know this love of God. We are united to him. We see something of it. So where you guys have genuinely, right, let's say you sing the love of God. Or you just think, wow, God is so amazing. Right right, that, right there. That's that spark that you want to flame. That you want to see inflamed. So that you would enter more into the love of God in Jesus. And be more and more united With him, such that his loves become your loves, his ends become your ends, his will becomes your will. If you're a member of First Baptist Church, this unity here pictured is, is our unity. It is, in fact, our glorious unity. Christ has given us and given you his Spirit so that we might love in him and love like him. Of course, this doesn't mean that our church is perfect even though our love is fundamentally different from the world's love. So, you know, if you're thinking about joining the church here, you should not expect this church to be perfect. You should not expect any community to be perfect here in the world. That's reserved for his saints in heaven. And we see this, right? We see this. In the very next chapter, in the very next chapter, we see that there is sin in the church. How's that for being an imperfect church? So do not expect perfection here in this church, but know that when God, has, when God saves us, He saves all of us with our problems. That means, friends, that you, church member, got problems, and it means you contribute and I contribute to some degree to the problems in the church. But isn't that the whole point in the gospel? You bring the problems, God brings the solution. Christ bears our burdens in saving and sanctifying us by his grace. He says, you got problems, you come to me. And so we as a church too, that should be the way in which we interact. We all got problems, let's go towards one another so that we can love like Christ, so that we can remind each other. Yes, do you remember that faithfulness and the forgiveness that we receive from God? Let me remind you of that. We all got problems. And so when we come together as an extension of God's love in Christ, We come together bearing each other's burdens and sorrows and issues, making sure that the very fissures and the cracks that we ourselves might produce because of our own sin get covered over by the love of God in Christ. Forgiveness, encouragement, even rebuke and reproof. And so we live our lives as Christians. This is no easy task. So thank God he gives us the spirit who gives us joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In the church, God himself is at work. He is building his people, making us into a people who display his glory. Given we are a united church and trying to love in a way that reflects Christ's love, we are a blessed church. Another reason why they were a blessed church is, point number two, point number two, Because of God's favor. They were a favored church. They were a favored church. It seems pretty clear why they were favored. They were saved, after all. They were united to God. They had his spirit in them. But they were favored in this passage and in this sense of being favored because God was bearing fruit in them. Look there, verse 33, look there. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. The heralding of the gospel, and then there is great grace upon them all. This definition for grace here, in this context, is divine favor. We're not talking about being saved here. We're talking about divine favor and presence, at least in this context. God's favor and presence is made clear through, you look there, you know, God's answering their prayers. They pray for, for boldness to herald the gospel, and so the apostles are heralding the gospel with boldness. But then number two, you look there, the Christians were loving one another with the love of Christ. And in these verses, it's highlighted how they met each other's needs, specifically how they met each other's needs. It's an interesting statement here that great grace was upon them all. I wonder for you, Christian, how many of you guys would actually see God's grace in the moment and actually would have appreciated it? I say that because they were, again, experiencing a growing persecution against them. Just as Jesus told them that it would happen, so it was happening. They saw Jesus killed, and now they see the apostles being arrested, interrogated, etc. But yet, inside the church, right, they see what's going on outside, but yet inside the church, divine favor is upon them all. Some of you guys might be given to to anxiety. In fact, I'm one of them. Maybe you, it feels like you sort of stand on, on the outskirts of the kingdom, right? Right at the gates, so fearful about what's happening outside and all the people who might be wanting to attack you. I right? think you guys know what it's like then to think about they killed Jesus. They killed my older brother in the, in, or they, they're persecuting my so-called older brother in the apostles. But yet here, isn't it useful for you, for you who might be given to anxiety? This passage actually redirects us. To see very clearly, not so much what's going out there. We know what's going to happen, but then we're redirected to look on what's going on inside of God's church. Inside the earthly embassy of the heavenly kingdom. What do we see? Divine favors upon them all. You know, the more, I think it's safe to say that the more you care about being loved by the world, right? some of you guys might be anxious about this, the more you care about being loved by the world or to not suffer at the hands of the world, right, the less you turn around and see the evidence of God's love for you in Christ. If you spend all day long, let's say, longing to be with everybody outside of the kingdom, so to speak, flirting with them, thinking about what they have and what they do, how they dress like, etc., you know, the very shoes in which they walk, so that you might want to be like them, the less you're going to care about what God is doing, inside of the church the less you care frankly about the unity of the church i don't see how that couldn't be the case right so if you spend so much time and energy trying to make the money in order to spend it on yourself so that you could look like and live like the world why in the world would you want to give away the very means to your end of worldliness as in you physically part with money to give to the church because that's what you would want so that you can live to the fullest here on this earth. So that you can live like the world. Or if you spend so much time trying to get in good with the world. You spend so much time being loved by the world and you, to win, you want to win their approval. To what degree would you throw in your lot with Jesus and the Christians? Jesus who was killed and the Christians who are going to be killed as we walk through the book of Acts whom the nations rage against. Why in the world would we do this, right? The more time, the more we spend thinking about what's going on outside, the more our hearts are desired to be united with the world. Of course, we're not really going to care about being united in one heart to the church and with Jesus. In those cases, it's the world's favor that you desire, not God's. Who would care about union of heart with the persecuted and the ostracized church when you want union with the world? Friends, I hope these questions are getting you to... Reflect even right now on your own desires. Do you care about the unity of the church? So much so that you're very eager to part with your material blessings to see other people's needs met. Are you so willing to part with time so that you can involve yourself in other people's lives so that you can help them and teach them something that might benefit them, particularly things in the gospel? If you have eyes to see the love of God in Christ and how He has taken you by His free and sovereign grace to be His child as He has transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, then you love. And even though you might struggle, you love union with Christ. You desire to know more of this union with Christ and union with His people despite the suffering that goes on. And so you see this grace was upon them all even if the outside world is readying for a more stronger onslaught you see friends that's god's victory and steadfast love as he fulfills and moves towards fulfilling everything that he promised to make a people who displays his glory to the watching world and to display his steadfast love to his people though the nations rage against christ and his people here god answers it with heavenly favor And now today we have the opportunity to contribute such love and such unity as we extend the love of Christ to our fellow members in Christ. So you guys, Christian, how are you contributing to this love and this unity? Are you contributing to giving and receiving Christ-like love? Or are you, frankly, just a dead end of God's favor as if God's grace in Christ was given just for you to know and never for you to pass on so that others would know the same through you. With the Father having given us His love in Christ, He expects His love to be shared between all of His children. Are you happy being selfish and hoarding the love of God? The reality is, the Bible says that if you have no love for your fellow Christians, and this is strong here, 1 John says, if you do not love the brothers, you ought not to have any confidence in your Christianity. God desires his people, having received his lavish love in his son, he desires that we now share it with others. And through our love, we remind God's children, our brothers and sisters, about the father's love. The church does that once again with forgiveness. The church does this with God's grace. If you struggle, you bring your burdens, and we remind you: Do you remember the Father's love? Think of you know the the illustration. If you know we have siblings, and uh, you know parents give us the lunch money, and we go to we go to school, and then one kid gets bullied, right? One sibling gets bur- bullied. Bully takes the money, and for whatever reason, you know. The, the, for various reasons. They're suffering, maybe they feel like for some strange reason they're going to get in trouble because they lost what the Father gave them. If So we are to come along to our brothers and sisters and say, what? Have the money that Dad gave us. Here, you take some of mine. Remember the love of the Father. We'll go get more because He is that good. And His resources are infinite because His love is infinite. Friends, do you contribute in this way? Whether we remind others about God's Lavish love of forgiveness, of grace, of encouragement. The church also does this in practical needs. In our passage today, this was the major way that God's grace and favor was upon them. The gospel, remember, was working its way into his people's hearts. They, having received the love of God, they go on and exercise the love of God. They provide for each other's needs. This is another way, another reason why they were a blessed church Point number three, point number three, they were a providing church. Look there at 33 once again. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds that was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This here was community that was bound together by the Spirit of God, and history shows that they were actually quite different from the, the, the friendships that were found in the culture. As one commentator noted, most of these friendships uh, that, that functioned where one could say, you know, what's yours is mine, or sorry, what's mine is yours, that happened mostly between social equals. But instead here, what do we see? We see that the love of the church goes beyond cultural expectation, and it's more of a love of a family, specifically a Christian family. Here you got the wealthy who own lands and homes, sharing all things with all people, like, for example, the lame man, the guy who was begging, asking for benevolence, in in earlier chapter of the book of Acts. He becomes a Christian, and here the, the more wealthier Christians are providing for His needs, providing for other people's needs. But, uh, guys, you realize that as we look at other passages in the Bible, it's not just the wealthy who are sharing. So if you guys find yourself um, maybe not having as much as others and maybe something's going on in your heart and you're thinking, yeah, this sermon's going to be about how the wealthy ought to give stuff to me. Actually, you look through the other portions of the Bible, that's not the case at all. You see also in 2 Corinthians 8, for example, Those who have, quote, extreme poverty are giving out of the abundance that they have received from God. They not only give what is basic, but there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says that the Macedonian Christians, in wanting to help other Christians, they go above and beyond. And he says there that their extreme poverty sort of welled up and resulted in an extreme wealth of generosity. That's what Paul says. So if you guys are extreme, are in extreme poverty, all of this applies to you too. It's just here in Acts chapter 4, that's not where the emphasis lands. So regarding the selling of their property, important things to know here, their giving was voluntary and occasional. It was voluntary and it was occasional. In terms of voluntary, this is going to be confirmed in chapter 5. Uh, uh, this, our section sets up the story that's going to come, come next in Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, right, they go and sell their property, and we're going to get into this next time. But the apostles clearly acknowledge that, look, this property was yours to begin with. And then after they sell it, the apostles recognize too, look, even the money after you sold it was yours to do whatever you wanted with. So you don't see the church laying claim to their property, or uh, neither do we see them laying claim to the money in the selling of the property. So it was voluntary. It was also occasional. It was also occasional. Other Christians in the New Testament are said to own homes, And so there are other passages that indicate that one who owned the home, it was genuinely theirs. Um, So that's voluntary. They choose to sell it whenever they they choose to. But then it was occasional. Here in Acts chapter 4, we've seen them doing it. But in other passages, we see that there are Christians who don't do that. And nor is that the expectation. We see that in Romans chapter 16. They're house churches. They're gathering in particular people's homes. And there's no expectation that the person sell the home, that the church is being used to a house this house church. So that's important as we, as we are, uh, it's, help, it's helpful to be reminded of lest a church today says, look, when you join this church, the very shirt off your back becomes communal property. The houses that you live in become, becomes communal property. The land that you own becomes communal property. That's not, that's not at all what's going on here. But that being said, don't let that downplay the generosity and sacrifice here that goes on. So if you do find yourself with with a a large degree of wealth, it is your responsibility and opportunity to use that wealth in service to other people. To use that wealth in service to other people in, in all sorts of different ways. And ultimately that's on you in terms of how exactly you do that. And once again, even those who have extreme poverty, even the, the money that they do have, that too is to be used in service to God's glory and the people, that is, other Christians. We see here a great example, Joseph, who is named by the apostles Barnabas, son of encouragement here. He's, he's the example. He goes and he sells um, a piece of land. Presumably he owned others as well. He lays it at the apostles' feet for distribution it's, it's awesome that this is recorded here. Such a practical way that we see Christians meeting each other's needs. It's also recorded in Acts chapter 6. The apostles there, they, they go ahead and they arrange the sort of daily distribution of food for the needy. We're going to look into that when we get there. Um, presumably, the funds came from some of these types of sales. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul writes to Timothy, who was in Ephesus pastoring a church there. He tells Timothy, look, th- you should put certain widows on a list so that the church might care for them. That's awesome that we see that there. We see the sort of practical, tangible ways in which the church was going about loving one another in Christ. In James there, James speaks about the church somehow caring for widows and orphans. We knew that that went on in all of this, right? The grace of God was upon all of the people, evidenced in them sharing material blessings. So going back to what we talked about earlier, are you a dead end? and a hoarder of God's blessings. Or, as you have now joined into the love of Christ, are you a blessing to others with the very things that God has given you? And by the way, being a blessing to others does not have to be limited to money and land. Perhaps you don't have extreme wealth. Maybe what you do have is knowledge that can be used to bless another person. Maybe what you have are skills that you can use to teach another person so that they might go on and do a certain something. Maybe maybe what you have is a certain other something, let's say your apartment, that you can use to invite people into it so you can provide for them the family that they don't have in Christ. I remember one time being hugely blessed and encouraged by one brother, um, as he was in uh, college, in university. And he invited me over, and uh, this was a church member, invited me over, I'm, you know, the pastor. And uh, he made for me rice, steamed broccoli, and he cut up sausages and fried them up real fast. Right, so you foodies, you might think like, oh man, this is, you might not uh, get your palate tickled. But in that moment, my soul was so encouraged, because here's a guy who's sacrificing time, Energy, food, making me what he can, trying to serve his pastor. That's super encouraging. He might not have extreme wealth, but he sure used the, the money, the time, the energy, the resources that he had to help and to provide. Super encouraging. Being a blessing to others can involve, again, sharing your very own self in a relationship. In providing for other people's needs, it can be food, helping around their home, running an errand for another person, trying to alleviate whatever stresses they might be going through. There's so many different ways, friends, that you can be a blessing. But since this passage has to do with material, or let's say the possession of money, here's a few basic questions to ask yourself, to encourage yourself, right, to spur yourself on to be a blessing to others as Christ desires you to be. You can write these down. Here we go. Is there a possession of yours that you would not lend to anybody. Is there a possession of yours that you would not lend to anyone? <clears throat> if your answer is, yeah, it's this thing over here. You probably have an unhealthy relationship with that thing. You probably do not see that as that as being God-given. Probably. And God-given so that you might use the steward for his glory... Not for your own hoarding. Generally speaking. Here's another one. Is there a possession you could not bear to lose? Very similar to the first one. Is there a possession that you could not bear to lose? One that you dare not sacrifice for Jesus' sake? There's another one. Have you determined in your budget, assuming that you guys budget, have you determined in your budget to give gifts to help other people? Just like you carve out, I'm going to pay this much money for rent. I'm going to pay this much money for food and insurance. Is there, is there a space, a line item in your budget for helping other people? Why not put it in there? Why not put it in there? And even if they might not be in dire need, as presumably these people were, even if they aren't in dire need, you feel free to give away hundreds of dollars if that's at your disposal in the wisdom, of course, in consultation with others, so that you can be a blessing to other people. Another one. Have you determined in your budget to give to the church? Galatians says that those who learn are to share everything with those who teach them. And here the point is not share everything with me, the point is share everything with the church. There seems to be this priority with actually sharing everything With the Christian community. Is that even in your budget? Is that a line item? If not, if you look there in the bulletin, um, you'll see there a little handout that speaks about uh, different principles that undergird Christian giving. Let me encourage you to, to read that. If you know that you struggle with giving regularly to the church, let me encourage you to read that. Now, who knows? Maybe it's like, you know, you weren't, you weren't doing so well 10 years ago, but man, you're doing better now. Praise God. But if you know that you could be doing better, or if you know that you, you uh, struggle with letting go of the money God gives you, let me encourage you, definitely pray over that piece of paper and involve some other friends in reading that. Here's another one. How is your gratitude for God's gift to you in Christ? In saving you from eternal hell. And how is that reflected in your giving of your material possessions? There it's, see, our giving should be tied to God's giving. Our generosity should flow from receiving God's generosity in Jesus Christ. I pray these questions would help you and help us all extend God's blessing and love to others as we bless people here in this church. Uh, Here's some corporate application. You know, here he's talking about meeting other people's needs and the church coming together and whatnot. In terms of how we seek to carry out the spirit of what we see going on here in Acts chapter 4, we do this, we try and do this through the Benevolence Fund. At least for our particular church here in Hacienda Heights, this is how we do it. You know, if we were a church in some area that had extreme poverty, it might look different. But for here, in, our, in, our, in this particular location, given who we are as members, you know, none of us are, are dying, uh, none of us are seriously struggling For food, insofar as I know, there might be some of you guys, I pray that you would talk to us. Uh, But insofar as I know, that's not the case. Uh, In general, we as Americans are incredibly wealthy compared to the rest of the world, right? So we're not really struggling with the same things that people were probably here in Acts chapter 4. But anyways, at various times, the elders have, in fact, dispersed money from the benevolence fund to help out various church members. And, uh, you know, we bring it up so often. Sometimes we bring it up in the members meeting. Um, And we want to be made aware of those who have a special need. And there's various reasons why people go through this need. So I pray that if you guys know of somebody who is in need, let us know. Or if you yourself are in need, do not feel embarrassed. I pray that you wouldn't feel embarrassed. I pray that you would come and talk to us. But if you're curious, when it comes to the Benevolence Fund, the elders... Just to give you guys some information here, we consider this on a case-by-case basis. And when considering needs, I have a bunch of questions that I run through in my mind. And you guys can use this practically too, right? So if somebody comes up to you and has a need and they're asking you for money, these are the questions that should go through your mind, right? So I'm trying to help you guys live out Acts chapter 4 here. Here's one. What are the person's needs? What are the person's needs? Are they asking for food, or are they asking for a 55-inch television because they want to upgrade, right? This is important to know. Here's another one. What's the nature of their financial need? What's the nature of the financial need? Given the nature of the need, we then know how it's most appropriate to help. Maybe it, it should be the church that helps together as a body, but maybe given that need, we can encourage them, well, have you sought to seek, uh, th- that, seek provision, let's say, from your family members? Um, Or we can find, you know, maybe we can direct them to this channel, let's say the government in relation to unemployment, things like that. Here's another one. Why is that person in a state of need? Why is that person in a state of need? Maybe there's like some devastating tragedy. Some dude loses his leg, can't go to work, can't pay his bills, right? That's bad. Or maybe they are just frankly straight up lazy and they don't want to work. Or they don't want to work as hard as most people should, right? Let's say they're a single person, uh, Their one job working 15 hours a week just doesn't pay the bills, and they don't want to get another job because it simply inconveniences their schedule. Right? Maybe they're lazy in their laziness, they might rather inconvenience you as opposed to inconvenience themselves. That would not be good. These are important questions to ask because the elders, and I hope you guys, you would not want to be in the position to enable people's sins. Does that make sense? Some people think that giving is always the right thing to do, but I got a friend, his name is Mez McConnell, and he served as a missionary to the slums of Brazil. And not only that, though, but now he runs an organization called 20 Schemes, along with Matthew Spandler-Davison, who's preached for us before, Uh, and they go and help the poorest of the poor, and they plant churches in those communities. And Mez told me, hey, you should read this book called Toxic Charity, and it talks about how actually charity can be toxic. Why is that? It's because it enables other people in their sins sometimes if you give at the wrong time for the wrong reason when you're not actually trying to help the other people. That's an interesting, it's a great book to read, Toxic Charity. The Bible is super clear. You look there in 2 Thessalonians, you, well, you can, read, you can uh, listen here. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's the word of God. So you can't take Acts chapter 4 and think benevolence in money is the right way to give and support the church at all times. That is not the case. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. He goes on to say, "For we hear that some of you, that is you guys in the church, walk in idleness, not busy at work, being but busybodies." Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You see, if you enter in too quickly with not enough wisdom and with not enough consideration, you actually end up supporting the lazy. You actually end up supporting the idle, those who do not work, those who are, in fact, busybodies. So if we don't think about these things, we could be encouraging that person in their laziness once again. This is exactly, and we, what we want to do is be protective of those people. We want to protect them from their own sins. Does that make sense? We want to protect them from their own sins. This is why in First Timothy 5, you can go write that down, look at it later, Paul limits the kind of widows that go on the church's list. Paul limits the kind of wind- widows that go on the church's list. He say, look, this group of widows, let's put them on the list and care for, care for them. But he says this other group, the younger widows who, who can be free to marry, because in that, in that context there, they were given also, it seems, to being busybodies and whatnot, refusing to work and whatnot. They say, do not put them on the list, lest they give into their sin and lest the church be burdened by them he says that group no this group yes so they got to exercise wisdom there in how they exercise uh, their own benevolence for the christian wrestling with laziness or wrestling with adulthood if they are teachable you know the best way to help them is to have a more mature and godly man or woman help them along about what it looks in what it looks like to work unto the lord Maybe even the basics, right, on how to set a schedule. Maybe even the basics on how to look for a job. Maybe even how to keep a job. Maybe even developing the skills for a job. And I know that some of you guys, I've been so encouraged, I've seen you guys reach out to other people to help them with these very things. Giving of yourself. That is a legit sharing of yourself with others. The skills that you've learned, you pass on to others. The love that you have, so you love others with, so that they would be protected from their own selves. Other questions that we could ask here, are they willing to open up about all of their finances? Are they willing to be open about all of their finances? Will they be wise with their money? If they don't know how to manage money, do they seek wisdom from the church? These are just good basic questions that we can ask ourselves, questions that I ask myself as we think about the benevolence fund and whatnot. But again, even with all of these questions, the gut reaction should be how do we meet each other's needs just as Christ has met ours. Of course, we meet them in different ways. But this is a great way in which our love can be reflective and really extend the love of God and the blessings that God has given us. To conclude here, I pray that these questions help move us forward towards extending God's blessings to others in the church with love and wisdom. As those who are united to Christ, And to each other by the Spirit, God has blessed us with his grace that saves and his grace or favor here in this case as he bears fruit in all of our lives. And as we love like Christ in all sorts of different ways, material and not, we remind each other that indeed we are a blessed people in the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are our generous God. So generous as you give of yourself. As we think about in the Lord's Supper that we turn to now. We see your great generosity of you so freely given of your very own self, the son, you, Lord Jesus, to the death. That we might be secure, that we might know God's love for us. In the forgiveness of sins that you have won for us. Help us, Lord, know your love more and act in it with the generosity that we have so received. We pray, Lord, that we would give as well, give of ourselves and even sacrifice ourselves just as the apostles did. In your name we pray, amen.